Well, I apologize. Um, didn't have time to get you get your all notes. What I hope to do is, um, once I get caught up on that and uh, post that online, so for you note takers, um, if you want to go through those notes after the fact, it's going to come in a little bit late. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to go through a handful of passages this morning. And admittedly, this is going to be a little bit more of a study than it is a sermon, more of a teaching lesson. Um, we're going to go through a handful of passages. And with that, uh, I will, would ask you to open up to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Um, it's going to take us a minute to get there, but I want you to have that ready for when, when it is time to get there. And uh, we're going to eventually go through verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. So I got a question for you. This is probably a silly question. You ever notice life is kind of hard? Like way harder than it should be most of the time? Am I the only one that feels that way? Okay. Do uh, you ever feel this way? Do you ever feel like life is just going from one moment to the next, swimming upstream? You know what I mean by that? There's this current that's pushing against you, and you're always trying to push back against it. Uh, spiritually speaking, uh, that is definitely the case. I heard one preacher remark that uh, Christ followers, that we're called to swim upstream in a downstream world, that we are called to swim upstream in a downstream world. And the current of this world and of our flesh and the enemy is constantly pressing against us forcefully. I think sometimes we forget that, don't we? I mean, our flesh does enough to, to mess us up, but we are in a spiritual battle, yes? And there is a current that's always pressing against us. And really it's this, that the lies of the enemy war against our hearts in an effort to draw us to desire and seek anything other than the face of Christ. And what I hope that we're going to see today from Scripture, and specifically the book of Isaiah, is something critical regarding the heart of God. And you're thinking, wait a minute, that was a strange plot twist. What does that have to do with fighting this current or spiritual warfare? What does the heart of God have to do with that? Well, it has everything to do with that. Um, and we're going to see that hopefully here, here shortly. Also, you know, I mentioned before, let me back up. Uh, we, we set a prayer for Matt. Tony is also traveling right now, and I appreciate that Tony... Um, asked me to kind of step in. Uh, so adding to your prayer list, just, just travel mercies for Tony uh, so that he can enjoy uh, his time away and also come back to us refreshed uh, and come back to us safely. But let's get back to uh, uh, the notes here. This is what I want us to see. This is the bottom line up front. So for you note takers, um, if you have something to write with, I ask you to jot this down. This is, this is the main takeaway. Rightly understanding God's heart Rightly understanding God's heart enables us to swim upstream in a downstream world. And I'll say that again. Rightly understanding God's heart enables us to swim upstream in a downstream world. And, and let me say it this way. Rightly understanding God's heart enables us to resist the current and run continuously to him. I'm going to say it one more time. Rightly understand, it's, I say it because it's important. Rightly understanding God's heart enables us to resist the current and run continu continuously to him. So this message is really broken into two parts. One, I'm going to define what I mean by the current, and two, I'm going to talk about or give an example from Isaiah how we fight that current. So, but this is reality. If you and I stop fighting, if we stop swimming, if we just go with the flow Spiritually speaking, that current of the world and our flesh and the enemy will pull us away 
from a right understanding of God's heart, and instead of running to Christ and seeking his face, we're gonna be pulled further and further and further away from him in terms of our affections and intimacy. Now pause there, what I, what I don't want you to think and what I'm not suggesting is that you're gonna be pulled away and lose your salvation, but you will lose your effectiveness and your impact for the kingdom will be minimized. Have any of you noticed that you just naturally grow closer to Jesus and more intimate with him as you just kinda let yourself go into spiritual lethargy and laziness? Is that how this works? I mean, this is kind of obvious, right? But we need to be reminded of it that we're caught in a current. So let's talk about that current for a second. I'm gonna ask you to, let's define it. Let's go ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I put a sticky note to mark my place. Now the sticky note's messing me up. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is really de- defining the current. We're gonna look at verse three, starting in verse three. It says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm gonna read that part again. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when the obedience is complete. So what in the world is going on there? This is, this is what I want us to understand, that not all our thoughts that run through our he- heads are friends. Many of our thoughts are foes. And those thoughts may come from our flesh, they may come from the influence of the world, they may be demonically influenced, uh, but not all our thoughts are friends, many of them are foes. And the desire of the enemy is to pull us away from knowing God. And knowing here, when you look in that text, that doesn't mean simply knowing about God, that has an idea of relationship. It's not simply information about God, but rather intimacy with him. Now, the enemy cannot bring us to a point where we as Christ followers lose our salvation, but he can get us off track. And he can inspire thoughts and doubts and unbelief that rip us away into a current where we're no longer seeking the face of Christ and we're seeking something else. And if you want me to back that up, which I will, I'm gonna ask you to go to another passage, and that's in Genesis. So please turn quickly to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. All right. You there? All right. You all are faster than me. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig trees, or excuse me, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And I'm gonna uh, make an argument here that the current we're fighting, and we're gonna see this hopefully from that passage, is that we're fighting against, what we're fighting against is a battle for the heart's understanding of and trust in God's heart and character. And I'm gonna say that again and unpack that from Genesis 3. The current we're fighting against is a battle for the heart's understanding of and trust in God's heart and his character. Now, when I've heard this passage explained before about kind of Satan's tactic, his modus operandi, um, what I've often heard is that uh, Satan was twisting God's word, and if we're to fight against the lies of the enemy, we need to really go out there and preach the word and hold fast to doctrinal truth and all that. That is 100% absolutely true. But the problem is I think it kind of misses some of the nuance of what Satan was doing here with Adam and Eve. He wasn't just twisting God's word, misquoting God. He was trying to twist up in, in Adam and Eve's mind and heart their understanding of God's heart and his character. His heart and his character. This is all about God's heart. So he does twist God's word. First, he contradicts God, and he tries to portray God as being overly restrictive, where, you know, and this is what Eve says, we can't even touch this thing. And, and then uh, the enemy says regarding eating the fruit of the tree, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what was he doing there? This is what I think he was saying to Adam and Eve. Look, God is lying to you. There's something that he knows that he doesn't want you to know. And that is that if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. And he, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to hold you back. So listen to me, take a bite of that fruit and you'll see that God is a liar and that what I'm telling you is the truth. That's the tone. That's what I think is really going on there. And then what happened? Something happened within Eve where she started to buy into that lie, and then she started to doubt God's character. And once she started to doubt God's character, she started to what? Desire something she hasn't, hadn't desired before. And that desire was birthed in unbelief regarding God's heart and character. And that's the same thing that the enemy tries to do to us today. That's the current that we're caught in. If he can get us to start desiring something in someone other than God that's born from a heart of not believing in God's heart and character, then he can push us away from God to someone or something else. And what is that someone or something else? That's called idolatry. See, we have this mistaken idea that idolatry is all about, I bow down to this graven image. What idolatry is, is that when we replace, any, uh, replace God with anyone or anything else, that's idolatry of the heart. And the reality is, is, even as believers, we can get wrapped up into that. And it starts with, the root of that is unbelief, specifically regarding God's heart and God's character. That's the current that we're caught in. Remember what we went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 10? What did he say? It's opinions, it's arguments, it's thoughts raised against the knowledge 
of God. And that's not simply knowing about God, that's knowing him intimately. So what we have to do is take those thoughts captive that are rushing through our heads, remembering that not every thought is a friend. Many of them are foes. But if we're passive in this thing, we're gonna get swept away into the current and pulled away from an intimate relationship, an abiding relationship with God. Does that make sense? All right. All right, so with that, that's kind of the introduction. That's the current. We had to define that now. We need to talk about how to fight that current. There are many places that we could go in scripture that deal with the heart of God and how having a right understanding of God helps us fight that current and then run to God and pursue him. I selected one passage because we don't have that much time. We could go through many. Uh, My favorite passage, or one of my favorite passages is again out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, and that's where we turned to before. And if you haven't yet, please turn there now. Isaiah chapter 55. And before we go there, I'm gonna read for you one of my favorite quotes is from author A.W. Tozer. He wrote this in uh, his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He makes a critical, critical observation that I think the church as a whole needs to desperately hear today. He wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on to write this. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, that's not a word we use often today, the most portentous, the most significant fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. There it is. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Pretty powerful stuff, huh? Most important thing about you and me is what comes to mind when we think about God. Um, Those thoughts determine everything that is important about us and our relationship with God. And Tozer would go on to explain that we are naturally drawn to or flee from our mental image of God. And the problem is that current that we spoke of is always, always, always pulling us in the wrong direction. So what happens? Our natural inclination left to our own assumptions, we will always think wrongly about God in his heart. And we need to understand that if we just go with the flow, we will naturally always think wrongly about God and his heart. And we'll drift further away from him instead of swimming upstream. And here's really the big problem that you and I have. When it comes down to it, we think too little of God. We do, we think too little of him. Uh, and specifically, we diminish his heart, naturally. Isn't that what happened with Adam and Eve? They didn't really think that God's heart was for them. They didn't trust him. They, no, 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 no. He doesn't have my best intention in mind. And we're tempted to think that as well. So in this next passage, what we're about to examine is gonna help us hopefully recalibrate, reorient, and enlarge our thinking about God, and specifically 
his heart. And I told you before that this message in, is in two parts. The first was discussing the current, and now we're gonna look at how to fight against that current by, by examining God's heart. And this is what I want you to hear from Isaiah chapter 55. This is the main idea of this, this verse, that God's heart is totally unlike ours. God's heart is totally unlike ours in this way, that God's heart is overflowing with compassion and an eagerness to abundantly pardon, to forgive, and to extend mercy. And this love that he extends to us extends beyond the scope of our imagination or ability to describe. And I love what pastor uh, and author Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, I'm always quoting that book. It's a sickness, right? Great book. Uh, he says this actually about this passage, God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts and that his are thoughts of love and ways of compassion that stretch to a degree beyond our mental horizon. I'm gonna read that again. God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts in that his are thoughts of love and ways of compassion that stretch to a degree beyond our mental horizon. So with that, let's go ahead and look at what that passage actually says. Isaiah 55, verses six through nine. I need to get new context, I can't read the time. I'm gonna try not to go too long today. I think that says 940, okay, we got time. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now for the sake of clarity, and this is somewhat of an artificial breaking up of the passage, but for you note takers, uh, I've divided this into three headings, return, response, and reason. Return, response, and reason. So first, I'd like you to see the call that God has for us to return to him. Look again in that text. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. So God is communicating through the prophet Isaiah to Israel and also to us to return to the Lord. His encouragement, one, is to seek the Lord. Two, to call on him. Three, for the wicked to forsake his ways. And four, the unrighteous man his thoughts. And all of that can be condensed into one word. That word is return, to return to the Lord. Uh, returning to the Lord involves seeking. He says to seek the Lord while he may be found. The prophet is telling Israel that God isn't hiding. He isn't far off. He wants you to return to him, but now is the time to do so. Therefore, seek the Lord while he might be found. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. Don't assume that you have time. Don't assume you have time. Return to him now. And returning to the Lord also involves calling on him. Now, if I were to ask you what it looks like to call on the Lord, uh, most of you would point to prayer, which is normally what I would point to as well, and that's definitely true. Calling on the Lord involves prayer. And it's true that we're called to pray, uh, but our typical idea of prayer doesn't bring out the force of what Isaiah is communicating here. The idea is it's a cry out for help. It's help! 
I need you, I'm desperate. That's what he's saying, cry out, to shout out the top of our lungs, some of that woke, woke you up. That's why, only reason I did that, <laughs> right? I didn't make the coffee strong enough this morning, so I have to compensate, right? But that's the force of it. And I think of when a child wanders too far from their father and the, uh, or their mother in the store, and they cry out, mommy, daddy. That's, that's really the force of this, okay? Um, it's a crying out for one that's lost and desperate for rescue. And, by the way, we as believers need to cry out to the Lord. We need to cry out to the Lord. This isn't just for unbelievers. We need to cry out because we're more desperate for God than we can possibly imagine. But the prophet doesn't simply call us to seek God or to cry out to him. He calls us to reject something as well, to push away from something, to leave something behind in the process. There's an act of pressing on toward God and an act of turning away from something else. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. And this simply means that those who are on a journey away from God need to change course, adjust azimuth, and move in a different direction. And then he says, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And the word thoughts here doesn't mean just these passing thoughts that come through our head. It's the idea of intention and plans. The prophet is saying in the previous clause to get off the wrong path, and now he's saying make a change of plans. Change, your, change where you're going. The wicked map out their plans in a direction that is self-destructive, and now God says get off of that path. Now pause. I want you to think about this for a second. What Isaiah is not saying is for us to clean ourselves up morally, although we should pursue righteousness, right? This isn't a call to just moralizing oneself, okay? To replace bad decisions with good decisions. No, it's much, Satan would love it if that's how we interpreted this, by the way, because that keeps us from pursuing the heart of God. It makes it all about our efforts and our actions, right, and our behavior. It's not about that. It's much bigger than that. It's a complete reorientation of one's life. It's a call to get off the path of self-destruction and to get on the path of life heading in intense and intentional pursuit of God. That, by the way, is repentance. That's repentance. Uh, repentance is never about simply avoiding sin or managing our sin, but reorienting our hearts towards God to seek His face. And our hearts won't properly reorientate in God's direction if we have a wrong view of God's heart. That's why passages like this are so important. By the way, this is in my notes, but think about this. If you have a wrong view of God's heart, who are you turning to to begin with? It's not the God of Scripture. Just a thought for you. And now look at how uh, the call, uh, excuse me, look at how God responds. That's our second heading to those that return to him. How God responds to those that turned to him because we see something beautiful about the heart of God right here. And, and I love what this passage uh, uh, does is it reminds me that God doesn't merely tolerate us when we return to him, rather he welcomes us. It says he's eagerly and abundantly pardons us and welcomes us with open arms. He's excited and eager to welcome us because he says, I will abundantly pardon you, not just merely forgive you. So he says that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly Pardon. God's heart is overflowing with compassion and a willingness to not merely pardon, but rather abundantly pardon. And there's a big difference between that, okay? You think about if you have a, a broken relationship with someone and they just kind of tolerate your presence and they kind of forgive you and there's a little bit of connection point reestablished. That's not how God treats us. 
He abundantly pardons us. He welcomes us with open arms. I hate to be that guy that is known for preaching about guacamole. Do you all remember this illustration? How many of you do not want to hear it again? <laughs> Just be <laughs> okay, you got one back here. All right, for those who haven't heard it, this is how I think of this passage. And I really, really wish, maybe you pray for me in this area, that I come up with a better <laughs> illustration because it's a little bit silly, but as you know, I love Chipotle. I do, but to this day, I still have a beef with, uh, with how they dispense guacamole. And you pay an arm and a leg for it, right? And then they tie that out to you in teaspoons, right? So I was there once and actually, no, who was it? Was it Alex? Alex, you told me the story. So um, by the way, they're doing a great job with worship today, aren't they? Yeah, this has been awesome, yeah. You can applaud, that's fine. They've been doing awesome. So Alex, I, I remember sharing this illustration. Then Alex was like, that's crazy, dude. Do you know what just happened to me at Chipotle? He said he was in line and he got the little thing of guacamole. And I guess it was a new worker. They didn't, they didn't get the memo and started loading up the guacamole in this little cup. And uh, the manager came alongside and kind of whispered like, hey, that's too much guacamole. <laughs> so they took a scoop of it and put it back. Oh, <laughs> uh, it cracks me up. But anyway. So <laughs> that's often how we think about God's heart and how he pardons us, but that he's abundantly pardoning us. He, he's not tithing or holding back his compassion and his love. So this is what I always say. When you go to Chipotle uh, and you get the guacamole and they give it to you in little teaspoons, stare them in the eyes and say, God gives me all the guacamole and then just stare at them. <laughs> So in your mind, the only thing that you're gonna leave from with this sermon is that abundantly pardoned means God gives me all the guacamole. <laughs> God's not holding back his love, his compassion, his forgiveness. He's eager to give us his love in an overflowing measure, not in small increments. He went above and beyond to clothe you. Think about this in Christ. Did God just merely forgive you and now he gives you a spot in heaven and then he kind of stands off at a distance? No, he clothes you with his righteousness and he welcomes you forever into his heart. That is abundant pardon. That is intimacy that is beyond just merely tolerating someone and, and just giving them bare minimum forgiveness. Now notice where the verse says, and to our God, and to our God, the New Living Translation renders it this way. Yes, to turn to our God. It's an emphatic repeating of where we began. Return to our God, turn to him. And what it is, is an emotional appeal to return to God. You might say this way. Forgive me for yelling into the microphone again. I gotta bring the force out though. Ready? Return to God. Yes, our God, return to him. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's urging Israel, pleading with Israel. He told them to cry out to God, and now he's crying out for them to return. There's an earnestness here. So what would motivate, what would move Isaiah to write with such a force and such passions? Because God, because God gives us all the guacamole, right? You already knew where we were going with this, right? Um, but I believe that he breaks it down in the following verses. It has everything to do with God's heart. He says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So perhaps you've heard, you've heard this said before, perhaps you've said it yourself. And then after this, you're gonna slap yourself on the wrist for doing this. Uh, you know, we can use scripture 
in a way that is biblical, but sometimes out of context. And that happens a lot uh, with this passage. So uh, perhaps you've been in a situation where you're going through something difficult and someone says to you, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. You heard that? Have you done that? It's true now, what they're, what they're describing is a beautiful doctrine of God's providence. And what that means is, God is working behind the, the scenes, he's orchestrating things with his, with his unseen hands to work out everything for our good and his glory, and everything's gonna work out in the end. His ways are higher than our ways. That is absolutely a true statement, it's just not what Isaiah is talking about here. This is not about providence, what is this passage about? It's about pardon. It's about forgiveness. It's about God's compassion. So he's not talking about providence. He's talking about pardon. It's about relationship. It's about God's heart of compassion. And what the text is saying is that God's heart is nothing like ours. While we are often reluctant to pardon others and to show compassion, God is not that way. Our hearts are often hardened and difficult to persuade and steer in the direction of forgiveness. That's not what comes naturally to us. His heart, however, is eager to pardon, pardon, for his thoughts are not our thoughts. The idea, again, here is not some kind of passing thought, but an active intention and a detailed plan. God's intentions or plans are not the same as ours. He doesn't map out the things the way that he does. Now think about this. Before time was time, before you even existed, God knew all the sinful, crazy, evil stuff that you were due, and he determined, he planned intentionally ahead of time to abundantly pardon you in Christ. And you know what's crazy? He knew after you became a Christian that you would still do a whole bunch of wicked, crazy, idolatrous stuff, and guess what he planned and intentioned to do? To continue abundantly pardoning you. Why? Because he gives you all the guacamole. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gonna stick though. That's my tactic, right? He's not holding back. He's not saying, you know what? You screwed up enough, I'm done with you. He's given us abundant pardon. Now that does not mean we abuse that pardon, right? That's a subject for another day. When we look at God's heart and his ways of compassion for us, that should draw us to seek him. That's the whole point. So have you ever planned abundantly to forgive ahead of time those that hurt you? Mm. Have you ever thought about, you know, people are gonna, gonna hurt me, they're gonna, they're gonna reject me, they're gonna say evil things about me, and then plan ahead? You know what, I'm just gonna abundantly pardon them. You know, I'm gonna, not gonna hold back any bitterness. We do not naturally think that way, but God does. That's how different his heart is for us. So he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how high is the heaven above the earth? Can we calculate that as far as we know right now? I believe a great summary of what Isaiah is driving at here is found in the hymn, The Love of God is Greater Far. I'm a, I'm a hymns guy, by the way. I love contemporary Christian music too, but I absolutely love these old hymns, and it's for reasons like this. They're just full of rich truth and doctrine. But it says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the sky of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So you know what that hymn is saying? If you had endless ink, endless parchment, endless paper, you had countless scribes, 
there would still not be enough paper, enough ink, enough words, enough manpower to give full expression to the immensity of God's heart for us. Our words fall short, woefully short of giving full expression to the heart of God. But the living word of God that the Apostle John says in his first chapter of his gospel, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word that became flesh gave full expression to the immensity of God's heart. And that word, of course, that became flesh is Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that means that that if you know Jesus, then you know what the heart of God the Father is like. And the living word that gives full expression to God's heart hung naked and bloody and beaten on a cross for our sins so that we would be abundantly pardoned and welcomed into God's heart forever. And if you're not sure, by the way, what that all means, then one of our pastors would love to talk with you after this. But here's the point. God isn't holding back his love. He's not holding back his compassion. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, and if there's any doubt in your mind regarding that, then consider God in the flesh hanging naked on a tree for you, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. That is abundant pardon. And he says this, it is finished. Telestai, another translation would be, the debt is paid. There's no more sin to be atoned for. All is pardoned. All of it. That is abundant pardon. So let it forever be blasphemy for us to say that God is not a God of love after Calvary. Amen? Now please hear what I'm about to tell you with grace. Some of you are running from God. And by the way, Ben, please get in place. I don't want to forget about you. Please hear this with grace. Some of you have ran so far that you don't think there's a possibility of returning to God. Some of you have dug such a deep hole that you don't even know if there's any reason to stop digging. Because you think that God won't take you back because you ran so far away and you've dug so so deep. And this is what I want you to hear. And again, please hear it with grace. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Stop digging, stop running and start swimming. The immensity of God's heart for you extends past how far you can run and how deep you can dig. So stop. Stop running and return to him. God isn't standing with his arms crossed, staring at you with a scowl on his face. He's eager for you to come back home and to return to him. Do you believe that? We just looked at these passages together. That is our God. Any other God, that, the God that's scowling at us, that's angry with his children, that's not the God of Scripture. Those are lies that need to be taken captive and submitted to Christ. Those come from the enemy. That's part of the current that we're swimming against. So this is what I think. You know, you know what else I think? It's time to wrap up. Now, you don't have notes, but I'm going to give you some questions to jot down, and uh, hopefully here soon we'll post something online uh, that you can pull off from there and work through. Uh, but this is what I want you to reflect on on your own or as in a group, in a small group, in a Bible study. I have four questions for you to reflect on. You ready to write it down? I pull out my phone and I use the little notepad thing on there. You can use that if you want. You ready? So I gave you a quote from Tozer before. He said, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. I'm going to flip that question on its head. And I'm going to ask you this. What do you think 
comes to mind when God thinks about you? What do you think comes to mind when God thinks about you? And kind of a part two of that question is, what does he feel when he thinks about you? What does he feel when, you think about, when he thinks about you? Hey, by the way, especially when you're in sin. I want you to think about that. Okay, next question. What lies regarding God's heart do you need to turn from? What lies regarding God's heart do you need to turn from? Next question. What truths regarding God's heart do you need to turn to? What truths regarding God's heart do you need to turn to? Finally, question four. What will begin to look different in your life as you turn from lies to truth regarding God's heart? What will begin to look different in your life as you turn from lies to truth regarding God's heart? You got all that? All right, it's your homework, okay? I said this was a Bible study. That's your Bible study stuff, okay? So I'm gonna leave you with one of my favorite quotes. Um, if you've ever listened to my devotionals, I have a sickness, I'm, re- I'm re- quoting this all the time. It comes from Jerry Bridges, he was an old navigator. But he says, don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Instead, get into God's word. Don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Instead, get into God's word. And that's how you and I fight the current, okay? Don't believe what we think naturally about God's heart. Instead, go to his word and see what he says about his heart there, amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this morning. Uh, I pray that you would uh, dig up within our hearts any lies that we bought into from the enemy and that we would deliver those thoughts, those rogue thoughts that are not friends but foes captive to Christ and help us to reflect on the immensity of your heart for us and in reflecting on that to naturally be drawn to you to resist the current and to run to you and to never stop running. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.